Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash support. Well, look at where we are now. They say, well, we have to double down now because the Taliban now control more of the country than they have at any time since the turn of the century and the start of the war. But that's not in spite of the war. That's because of the war. And welcome back to the OG, the original, the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast, the only Liberty variety show you're going to find out there in Liberty land. We work hard to bring you an eclectic grab bag of Liberty goodness each and every week. Of course, on Wednesdays, you get your weekly shot of comedy, culture, and Liberty on Electric Liberty Land with Brian McWilliams. You can spend your Fridays with John Odermatt as he exposes injustice in the broken criminal justice system on Felony Fridays. And come back right here every single Monday. You'll get some great roundtable discussions and insightful guests just like you're going to hear in today's episode, the 312th episode of this program, which means you can find the show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 312. And that's where we'll have links to everything I discuss with today's guest, as well as links to how you can contribute to our projects, helping Hurricane Harvey victims through Donorsea. We're helping to fund gas for the Cajun Navy Rescue Project, as well as to help a listener of this program and a longtime supporter, a big supporter in the Lions of Liberty Pride. Our first $25 member, actually, Daniel Lee. He was hit hard, him and his family, by the storm in Houston. And uh, we do have a project on Donorcy to help him as well. You can find links to all of that at lionsofliberty.com slash Harvey. We'll discuss that a little bit more after my interview with today's guest. So let's get right to it. My guest today is no stranger to many listeners of this program. He is the managing director of the Libertarian Institute and the author of the very important new book, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. He is the host of Anti-War Radio, which airs out here in SoCal, as well as his own show, The Scott Horton Show. Of course, I'm referring to the one and only Scott Horton. Scott, are you ready to roar? You know, I just saw the coolest thing today. It was a little baby lion cub biting his father on the bottom, and the father lion was pretending to roar in terrible pain. <laughs> and the caption the caption said that they do this to train their cubs, to encourage them. Wow, that's really interesting. Hunters. That was the cool picture. So there's my lion story for today. How do you like that? All right. I like it. We, it's not. Thank often, you for having me. Absolutely, Happy to be here. of course. It's not often we get a little story to go along with the with the lion roar. So that's nice. <laughs> you know, what? within the last forty five minutes, I saw an interesting picture of a lion. What am I supposed to do? What are the odds? What are the odds? Right? It must be karma for you to be on the show right now. Now, Scott, the subject of this book here, um, you know, th- this war has been going on at this point for not not more than half my lifetime, but almost half my lifetime. It's been going on for 16 years. So why did you decide, or just about 16 years, this will be airing on the 16th anniversary of 9-11, of course, the war launched shortly thereafter that. So, you know, why did you decide to write this book, which I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe this is your first book. Why did you decide to write this book now focusing on the war in Afghanistan? Honestly, this is chapter two of the book that was supposed to be a collaboration with Tom Woods. 
that was supposed to be one kind of for dummies, very, you know, boiled down type chapter on each of the terror wars. And I started off with prehistory, that is Jimmy Carter through Bill Clinton years. And that part is what ended up becoming section one of this book, getting into this mess. Uh, but it was already, it just grew completely out of proportion. It just became too big to uh, be confined to a, a mere chapter of a story. Yeah. And then as I was writing about Afghanistan, as you said, the war's 16 years long. And so I had a pretty brief outline. I already know what I want to tell you about Afghanistan. But then the more I wrote about it, the more I wrote about it. And geez, I got to have a section on Guantanamo in here. And then, and then, and I kept thinking about, you know, people are going to be really impatient with chapter two Afghanistan when the heart of the whole story, of course, is over in Iraq and Syria and all of this. And so, you know, I don't know. And then at some point, I finally just admitted I'm actually working on a book about Afghanistan at this point. So I finished my rough draft. Then I read about 15 books and took a lot of notes. And then I wrote up a second draft. And then I spent about six months going over that about 10,000 times so that it'd be readable for you people. And in many ways, the war in Afghanistan has sort of become a forgotten war in a sense. I mean, we've heard about it recently only because Trump came out and announced his, I don't know if there's even a change to policy, maybe 5,000 more troops and now we're going to kill bad guys or something. It's kind of unclear what's exactly changing there. But uh, so for that reason, it was kind of in the news recently, but it's not something you really hear about. It's not the political football that, say, Iraq is, where pretty much universally it's agreed, up, agreed upon that at best Iraq was a mistake. And I mean, you even heard presidential candidates criticizing the war in Iraq. You would never hear a presidential candidate, even now, criticizing the war in Afghanistan. So so why does this war get taken for granted so much? Why is it just seen as something that we have, it's going on, and well, I guess we're just going to have to keep it going because because 9-11, I guess? Well, that's the thing. I mean, the American people don't buy that anymore. All the polls have shown for years that the American people, you know, more or less agree with that premise for the start of the war. Although, as I show in the book, it could have been handled with extradition if the Americans had truly wanted to negotiate a peaceful resolution. But most people accept the initial premise of the war. They've got to go get Osama and all that, even though that failed. But staying for 16 years just to pacify the local population, I mean, even Donald Trump can see through that. I mean, he is certainly no expert on this kind of thing, but he has made the statements, although I admit it's Eli Lake who says he said this, but it's kind of against his interest, I think, and it confirms my bias, so I'm running with it, that the president himself has been grumbling that, well, Alexander the Great couldn't do it, and the British and the Russians couldn't do it, so why would we try to do it? This, you know, Which goes to show that he's not talking about fending off Egyptian and Saudi uh, bin Ladenite international terrorists hiding out in Afghanistan, he understands that the war in Afghanistan is against the Afghan people, the Pashtun tribesmen primarily, and their insurgency that's being fought to keep us the hell off of their lawn. And of course, he rolled right over and announced the escalation anyway, because he's hawkish enough, and what does he care? But he has absolutely demonstrated for years. I mean, you say no candidate will even say this. It's true. He did not say this actually in the campaign itself. I don't think he really mentioned Afghanistan specifically, although he did kind of include it in the whole Middle East policy occasionally. But for years before he started running for president, he said that the war should end. And he even supported Obama when Obama was facing down the generals and insisting to hold them to the timeline for the withdrawal of the surge forces, at least, beginning in 2012. So it wasn't just partisanship. It probably started out as mostly partisanship against Obama. But he even 
tweeted out at one point, I support Obama against these generals. They need to learn this war is over, time to come home, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a pretty severe flip-flop. This is actually one thing that you could identify that Donald Trump really believed uh, that he was right about, that he's betrayed. So if you seem to think that President Trump actually does see that the war is is kind of nonsense, that it's kind of a no-win situation and, and that we're just bogged down there and there's not really a way to win, why do you think that he took this stance of, I don't even I really honestly, maybe you can explain it a little more. I don't really understand what the stance is. He really just said, we're, we're, not, we're just here to kill the bad guys now. We're not here to get bogged down. Meanwhile, telling us we're just going to stay there and be bogged down and, <laughs> right. and increase the troops by, I guess, 5,000. I guess the good thing is that it's 5,000 and not, I don't know, 500,000. So I guess I could say, like, that's not as bad as it could be, but that's about the best I could say about it. Uh, what do you think that he's actually thinking here? Do you think he's just trying to appease the generals who generally do want to stay there and, and think that they should still be going after certain groups? Yes. I think that's, you know, really has a lot to do with it. Absolutely. You know, from the point of view of politics, this is still just barely past the first half of his first year in office here. And so, you know, look at what and he invoked this in his speech, which, by the way, wasn't that speech the perfect example of Horton's law, where he said all the right <laughs> things about America first and blah, 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 all throughout the speech. And and this is no blank check and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, as you say, throughout the speech, he absolutely was writing a blank check. He was announcing that the actual change in the policy is one from timelines to one on, based on circumstances. And we will never announce when we're going to leave. There, the premise of McMaster and now Trump's argument being that the only thing wrong with Obama's surge was that he announced beforehand that this is temporary. And it's just a surge. A surge implies temporary right there in the bogus term, you know, this new speak slogan they came up for escalation, a troop increase in the first place there. Surge sounds like, you know, a storm surge, but then it rolls back out again. Whatever, sometimes. And so they say, no, no, no. The only problem with the surge was it wasn't permanent. It wasn't indefinite. And if only they announced now, after 16 years, that, hey, Taliban, we're really not ever going to leave. That now they will, without that timeline to bide their time and wait for, now they will come to the table and deal on our terms. And at the same time, contradicting that, they say, eh, you know what, negotiating with the Taliban, I think they recognize the Taliban won't negotiate with them. Time is on their side, and they know that the North Americans still have to go home at some point. And so they're saying, well, you know what, McMaster's official strategy is, well, you know, we'll get to the negotiating part in the later stages of the four-year plan they're implementing here. And so then, as you said, you quote, Trump saying, well, we're just going to kill bad guys. That's the strategy now. The most dumbed down version of a so-called counterterrorism campaign against high value targets. It's almost like there's a, a bunch of people running around there painted red and we know they are all the bad guys and there's a bunch of people painted green and we know not to shoot them. And it, it's just that simple. Well, and in fact, what it is, is it's all bogus cell phone data and link analysis, network science nonsense. It's mostly a bunch of voodoo about whose cell phone has ever been co-located with anybody else's cell phone and what have you. And then you let the computer readout spit out the answer of who to kill. That way it's nobody's fault. And then it's all just based on inferences from SIM cards, virtually never verified by intelligence on the ground. And in fact, Remember Mike Flynn, the first national security advisor for Trump? I do. I believe we talked about him in depth uh, last time you were on the show earlier this year. 
Oh, yeah, there you go. Uh, he was the right-hand man to General Stanley McChrystal in the Afghan surge of 2009 and 10. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a report criticizing American intelligence methods in the Afghan war. And what he said was, when you're just going off of this, off of computers and drones, and you don't have any real intelligence on the ground, then you're basically just blindly shooting in the dark, killing innocent people and recruiting more enemies. And he derided this policy as mere counterproductive anti-insurgency, as opposed to his brilliant counterinsurgency, which from his point of view, I'm not selling it, but I'm just saying, you know, there's some right. truths in his argument uh, to be teased out here, is that, well, once we have the giant counterinsurgency surge with lots of troops, then they'll be able to gather accurate intelligence on the ground. They'll be able to verify who it is we're killing with the drones. That way we can do a good job of the targeting, et cetera. Of course, that didn't work either. And yet his criticism against mere anti-insurgency absolutely holds. As he put it, we're going to find ourselves leaving this war with more enemies than we had when we started, just like what happened to the Soviet Union in the 1980s. By 1989, they had more enemies than ever. Well, look at where we are now. They say, well, we have to double down now because the Taliban now control more of the country than they have at any time since the turn of the century and the start of the war. But that's not in spite of the war. That's because of the war. Where do you think the Taliban would be right now, say, if we had withdrawn four years ago? Do you think that the continuation of the war is actually fueling their power in a sense? Yeah, absolutely. It has this whole time. Now, if we gone, I don't know what time. If you want to say four or eight or what, I think, yeah, at some point, at least I'll put it this way, at some point they would have had more incentive to negotiate with the so-called central government in Kabul than they have now. Because the more power they have, the less incentive they have to compromise. It must be in their imagination now that if the Americans left them, they might just sack Kabul again. Whereas before, they might have just said, hey, give us autonomy and leave us alone, and we'll just rule Pashtunistan. And I think, you know, the, the real error here is thinking that Americans should ever be in charge of deciding these things, even if they would decide what I think is... I could come up with some parameters for a negotiated settlement here or whatever, but it shouldn't be any American's role. They're never going to do it my way in the first place. Got to always keep it in mind. Our our fantasies of government action are never how they're actually implemented. So I don't want to you know, say we should support negotiations because I think the Americans would never negotiate a legitimate settlement. I think the the only answer is what Ron Paul would do is just leave and wish everybody the best, you know, and advise them to, hey, man. You guys negotiate a settlement to this thing among yourselves without us in the way, without us distorting the power relationship so badly anymore and see where things land. It might be a bloody civil war. It might be a war of secession or an amicable one. It might be limited autonomy uh, within a central state or what have you. But to think a bunch of think tank idiots in Washington, D.C. and their foot soldiers, 19 year old Americans with machine guns and their mercenaries and and whatever allies over there ought to be in charge of deciding these things. It's it isn't it self-refuting when you put it in honest terms like that, that these these so-called wonks know what to do when clearly they don't. They haven't known what to do this whole time. Three, two, one. Hey folks, I'm Remso W. Martinez, the host of the one, the only Remso Republic podcast. Now I know what you're thinking. I know exactly what you're thinking, to be exact. This is a pitch for another show. I already listened to too many. But hey, I've got news for you. Each and every Wednesday, you can escape the mindless entertainment and loud political pundits by escaping to the place which truly is the clash of punk rock and politics, the Remso Republic. From comedians to politicians to real-life superheroes and liberty activists, 
we don't stick to normal often as we hard charge each and every week to bring you the freshest entertainment and news in an ocean of shows fighting for your attention. We're on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many more platforms. Don't miss out, join the fun, and be awesome. Stay up to date with the latest news and updates by visiting remzorepublic.com. Scott, I want to pivot and and tick the clock back a little bit to uh, something you would talk a lot about in the book is is you know right when this the war started and, and the, what was going on around there and one of the first things that struck me uh, was was something you talked about happening even before the war I believe in July of um, of uh, 2001 you said that the, the Taliban actually tried to warn the U S about possible attacks coming from Osama bin Laden yeah and that's all in there uh, where I try to break it down so the <clears throat> ever since at least the Africa embassy bombings in 1998, the Americans had been talking with the Taliban about turning bin Laden over. And at one point, I, I, I think it's a secondhand quote from a CIA officer, actually, who says that they at one point said, you know, we can't find him, which was their way of saying he's outside of our protection. Jeez, he, he got lost out there hunting and who knows what might happen to him guys what they were trying to say was go ahead and kill him and we'll say oops you know or they wanted they all they needed to do was save a little bit of face they were happy to give him up and that was before the attack you're right and they did warn and in fact this goes right to taliban culpability for 9-11 you know they were basically saddled with these al-qaeda guys and they were tipped off not by osama bin laden and al-qaeda that hey this is what we're about to do to the americans get ready they found out from some uzbek jihadis who they had a relationship with, who had heard it through the grapevine, was how the Taliban had found out about it, not from Osama bin Laden. And when they did find out about it, they went and sent one of their guys to try to warn the American embassy in Pakistan, and they turned him away. I don't know the, all the exact details, but at the very least, his warning was ignored. And I don't think that he said, oh, it's 19 guys and a hijacked plot in the World Trade Center and all that. All they knew was that there's something big going on and you guys better open your eyes up and, and look out. It was a warning, a legitimate warning, and they ignored it. So why was there such a push? It seems like from, from the very beginning that there was no conversation other than, well, we have to go invade this country now. I mean, obviously, and you even mentioned how they, like you know, now, they mentioned how they had implied you could assassinate him. They had made attempts after 9-11 to um, extradite him through various different methods every time they were rejected. So it seems to me, not that the Taliban are angels here, but they, it seems like they were trying very hard to cooperate and avoid a war, while at the same time, the Bush administration was really just intent on, on rejecting anything that might lead to not a war. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to give them too much credit because they should have just scooped his ass up and dropped him off at the nearest CIA station and said, have Adam and leave us the hell out of this if they were smart. And you know what? I mean, I'm not saying that they were necessarily wrong to say, well, look, he's our guest in our sovereign nation. Provide us some evidence, at least, and we could work out some extradition. At the same time, they should have known, yeah, that wasn't going to be good enough for the Americans. And they were really looking for an excuse to come. So, you know, if the Taliban had acted soon, it really wasn't until the bombs fell that they dropped all conditions. And again, their conditions were reasonable. But but, you know, the Americans, they did. They wanted a war. The American people wanted a war. And the American government wanted a war. And, you know, it's actually I almost am a little bit embarrassed to rely on Bob Woodward's reporting of all of this as much as I do in the book. But, uh, you know, most of what he has comes from interviews with the principals, however spun they are. 
but also from the notes of the meetings of the National Security Council that are taken by the staff when it's the principal's committee. And he ends up, you know, having access to these minutes about, you know, what they were saying and what they were talking about. I mean, it's just like you can imagine, right? It's Donald Rumsfeld and Condoleezza Rice and the rest of these idiots in a room. They're the ones who are calling these shots. And so Condoleezza Rice is saying, well, geez, guys, if we start bomb the Taliban right away, then that's going to clearly signal to them that we're just completely coming after them and they'll probably rally with al-Qaeda. But maybe if we wait just a minute and work a little harder, we can separate them away. We could really get the, the Taliban to turn on al-Qaeda. Certainly, we should give that a chance. And certainly, if we start bombing them both together right now, then that's going to be the end of that. And Donald Rumsfeld responses, yeah, but, you know, there's no good al-Qaeda targets really to bomb. We're talking about foot soldiers, you know, kind of spread out in, in and we don't know exactly where they are kind of yet. And so we don't want to look like we're just pounding sand. So as long as we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And so I hope I don't sound like I'm making excuses for these idiots. Like this is these simplest explanations are the only ones, but they clearly were not thinking about justice for the dead first and foremost, right. right? They had their bureaucratic interests. They're thinking about Iraq and how they can spin this as somehow Saddam's fault and all kinds of things. And of course, they're all vying for power and influence against each other within the council and everything else because they are who they are. So it seemed like Rumsfeld was more concerned that it, it wouldn't make a good TV show, you know, that it wouldn't. There's no we can't put any pretty pictures of, of buildings and cities being bombed because I mean, that, if we just go after some you know bases in the middle of nowhere, we need some good visuals here. We need good targets. And you're, you can't get that by only going after some people that are just kind of like hiding in the mountains. You need to go after the actual installed government and that being the Taliban. Yeah. And I remember, I mean, I have a pretty clear picture in my head of some of the initial footage of the bombing there. And they're clearly bombing just empty hillsides for show for the camera. I mean, there are hardly any. And I talk about it in the book. There were only 400 Al-Qaeda guys, 400. Half of them were killed at Tora Bora. The other half escaped. That was the whole war right there. Say Harry Brown. In fact, Harry Brown, the former presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party in 96 and 2000. I interviewed him back in 2003 and 2004, and I asked him, well, what if it had been you? And, of course, he said something like, well, I would have called off all support for Israel, and I would have pulled all the troops out of Saudi, and so the, the attack never would have happened. That's what Harry Brown would say. Yeah, that sounds right. right. <laughs> yeah, but then, he, but then I'm like, no, 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 run with my premise. It's too late. They're too, it's too late to call off the attack. They want revenge anyway. They, they do it anyway, even though you, you're in there. So, so how do you handle that? And of course, the answer was, and he wanted to get, you know, for me, this is libertarian weeds about whether to hire mercenaries or just send the damn Delta Force or whatever. Right. But the real <laughs> point is you make your response the most limited response possible. You kill or capture only the actual individuals who really share culpability for the thing. Maybe they're a couple of dozen closest friends. And then that's it. You call the whole thing off. Ron Paul said the same thing. I quote him in the book. Uh, when he introduced a letter of mark and reprisal, uh, which is basically a very limited declaration of war against a group less than a state, like pirates on the high seas. And he said, by doing this, we will show the rest of the Arab and Muslim world that we mean them no harm, that this is not about them, that we don't mean to make enemies out of them. And it will prevent more people from rallying to Osama bin Laden's cause. And of course, what happened was they ignored Ron Paul and they did their catastrophe anyway overthrew the whole country, created a whole new government, 
and then, you know, made enemies out of all of the enemies of the new government they'd created. One thing you mentioned a minute ago there was was Tora Bora, how there was that battle at Tora Bora where half of Al-Qaeda died and the rest escaped. Uh, in your book, you go into some detail about how they really did believe that they had Osama bin Laden cornered at that time in Tora Bora. And for whatever reason, they didn't authorize for all the troops they needed to go actually get on the ground and actually get in there and, and finish the job and, and get Osama bin Laden, who was you know supposedly the whole target of this entire thing in the first place. So what actually went down there as, as far as you can tell what was was it just strategic reasons that they didn't think they could you know go go through with that operation or was there some you know greater reason that they just didn't want to fully go after Osama bin Laden at that time you know I really don't know I mean I think the way you phrased it is right I mean I can clearly show that they refused to dedicate the available resources for what you and I and our parents and neighbors would assume would be the focus of the entire mission here right I mean dead or but alive instead, that's what that's what we were told by uh, W that's right. But instead, they did bait and switch and said, well, let's help the Northern Alliance warlords overthrow the Taliban in Kabul. And let's send in all the paratroopers down to Kandahar, where the Taliban actually withdrew from Kandahar City anyway, as a gesture of goodwill that, like, we really don't want to fight you. But, you know, let's do everything except focus on the Arabs. Where are the Arabs? Where and, it, you know, there were actually two groups. There was the Al Qaeda guys, about 400 of them. And then there was another group of about a thousand Arab fighters who weren't even members of Al Qaeda. But they were just fighting for the Taliban up there on the Shamali plane. They all got bombed off the face of the earth um, eventually, although it actually took about six weeks before their group was targeted. And then it was the CIA. Um, they have a paramilitary branch of special operators and then they were working with, of course, the U.S. Air Force and the Delta Force, the Army Delta Force. And they had these guys cornered. They did call in some airstrikes. They even dropped a 15,000-pound bomb on them. So I don't think it's fair to argue that they made no effort to get these guys. Right. And yet at the same time, the CIA and the Delta Force guys there, they were just mad and not at each other. They all blamed the leadership for refusing to give them the resources that they were, I think it's fair to say, literally begging for, especially the CIA had asked over and over and over again, give us their rangers right there already setting up at Bagram Air Base on the northern part of the Shamali Plain. Just I'm not sure off the top of my head, but not far away. Absolutely within range to come and help. And our current secretary of defense, James Mattis, had a detachment of 4000 Marines and they were also turned down. They were he asked to be allowed to get into the fight, and they just wouldn't let him do it. And as I said, the paratroopers, that was my first thing. Where's the paratroopers? Back in 2001, where's the paratroopers? And the paratroopers were way down in Kandahar City. In fact, the current Afghan war commander, Nicholson, he was 75th Ranger Battalion, JSOC, you know, missing his target by hundreds of miles back then, jumping out of a plane down in Kandahar instead of going after bin Laden and Zawahiri up there in Nangahar. You know, Scott, one more thing I want to touch on uh, that you discussed in great detail in your book are, are who some of our allies are in Afghanistan, because I think that gets glossed over a lot. And when you describe these guys that we're aligned with, whether it's the Northern Alliance or H Hami Karzai, uh, when we actually get into the nitty gritty of what these a lot of these groups have done, I, I don't know if they're worse, but it seems a lot of them are at least at least as bad as the Taliban and, and a lot of the other groups that were out there fighting. Yeah, well, and certainly the Pashtun population, by and large, seems to think so. 
and they have far more, the Taliban has far more support than the American sock puppets there. And what they are is they're criminals. I mean, I profile, I try not to spend too much time trying to make it, you memorize the names of all the different warlords and that kind of thing. But I do profile a few of them and how they operate and show how this is what has driven the insurgency. When you go, oh, I don't know who's worse. The people there respond by joining up the fight with the Taliban against the United States because, to be perfectly frank about it, America hires a bunch of child rapist, murderer, drug dealer, backstabbing, slime bag warlords out of the comic books. These guys, a lot of them are real monsters, and then we make them the chief of police. And they don't provide security. They're nothing but corrupt. They're all, you know, involved in heroin dealing and the black market or whatever. And we all know what that means, that when when you're talking those kind of drugs at the wholesale level, you're talking about massive violence in order to enforce cartel territorial, you know, problems and this and that. And we have the American army caught up all in the middle of it, um, you know, being put at the service of evil men uh, to do, you know, to accomplish their goals when the Americans, they don't know. The Americans say, who do we kill? And they go, these guys over there, Taliban, go get them. And the Americans go get them. They have no good intelligence. They go with what they're told. They do the wrong thing. They kill the wrong people. They make enemies. It's happened over and over and over again. I mean, it's just the same. Can you imagine some foreign government occupying your town? I mean, how many different neighborhoods are there in your town? And some foreign occupying army and intelligence agency is supposed to figure this all out of who's got what influence where and how to manipulate it and make it work well. I mean, yeah, just imagine if every every time you went to the grocery store, you had to get stopped and checked down and perhaps even shot by, say, a Chinese military checkpoint. I mean, at some point, we're all going to get pretty fed up with that. Yeah, shouting at you in a language you don't understand and this and that. And in fact, it was Stanley McChrystal himself told the New York Times that we have shot an extraordinary number of people at these checkpoints. And to the best of my knowledge, none so far has proven to have been a threat to the force. That is McChrystal himself. And that means mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, children, families, people. And of course, what's that doing is it's just creating even more potential terrorists as more people see this occupying power and see all the injustices that are being portrayed upon their neighbors or family or what have you, just their fellow citizens. I mean, the, the only thing that's going to do is, is, you know, create more resistance against the United States and the occupying force there. So it does really seem like the more we occupy, the more entrenched we get, the greater the resistance gets and the less chance there is of there ever being a quote unquote winner. I don't think that that's possible i think you would say that as well uh but I, I would like to get maybe i don't think you're a huge fan of predictions but uh, i'll ask you anyway what what do you see coming with the war in afghanistan with considering what you know about the people that are currently in power we, we broke them all down the last time you were on the show the people that are in power within the trump administration uh knowing that he's basically just giving the war to the generals as he has basically been his mo with foreign policy how do you see all this playing out are we just destined to just keep doing the same things we've been doing for the next four, eight years, uh, really just indefinitely as long as these guys are in power? Yes. I think, you know, I, I put off publishing the book and I put it off and put it off. And really, there were so many errors in there. Thank God that they kept delaying their decision because uh, there were some errors that I only found the last few times through where I was like, oi, facepalm. Thank God it didn't go out saying that wrong. <laughs> um, but so you know, people were telling me, just go ahead, just publish the thing, man. It's always going to be, you know, new developments. And my argument, which I should have listened to myself, I went ahead and published it five days before the big announcement. Then I had to go back <laughs> and change everything. 
um, or update a, a little bit anyway. You know, my idea at the time why I should have just gone ahead and waited was that this is going to be the last real big news story for a long time about it. Just Trump's speech, because my prediction and I, you know, whatever, maybe I'll be wrong, but usually I'm right about everything (laughs) is that we're going to have the same war for the next, say, three years that we've had for the last three since the end of the surge Uh, last four since the end of the surge. And that is just carry on. Just keep fighting keep targeting the Taliban, you know, where they make real gains, try to push them back, try to keep training up the army and just keep treading water, keep adding time to the Washington clock. The Taliban aren't going to negotiate. They've made that clear. We'll negotiate once you guys are gone. That's their standard. That's been their standard the whole time. I saw some guy on Twitter said the Americans have watches. The Taliban have time. And that's the, that's the deal, man. They're not going anywhere. We are. So it should just be sooner than later. That's it. Well, Scott, with uh, with enough luck, uh, hopefully voices like yours and others out there that are are really trying to spread the word about what's really going on with this war, uh, well, maybe in a, in a perfect or a, not a perfect world, but a better world, uh, an ideal world, rally the American people to uh, to more vociferously oppose this war as as they eventually did in Iraq. I mean, it's not it's not unheard of that the American people can can stop a military action. I think we saw that a few years ago uh, when Obama wanted to go into Syria with the whole red line thing, and they did back off due to public outcry so uh, i don't see that around afghanistan really at all but hopefully it's something we can we can sort of rally a little bit because i think this war really does deserve uh really i don't know want to say more focus than any other war i think these are travesties all over the world but this one has been going on uh for many people's entire lifetimes at this point i mean at this point we're going to start seeing people uh in the war that that were not even born when 9-11 happened uh, pretty soon here yeah we have literal toddlers people who were two and three years old yeah. when the attack happened have died there now wow wow in the war i've been killed in the war and you're absolutely right that the american people don't support this war they haven't supported it in years and only 20 percent in a recent poll supported any increase but the problem is they're just as you said they're not animated and motivated about it but if somebody could get their attention and say hey isn't this one we could call off oh you know what i started to say earlier and i, I didn't get to and this is our real problem i'm not exactly sure how to solve it and that is, is something that Trump said in the speech, which is pretty obvious, too, even before he said it. Right? You look at the politics of Obama's withdrawal from Iraq. Well, then bad things happened in Iraq after that. Never mind it was all Obama's fault for backing al-Qaeda and what you know ended up becoming literally the Islamic State in eastern Syria and western Iraq there. That was the real cause of the rise of ISIS, Obama and the CIA screwing around in Syria. But instead... The, you know, the warmongers who warmongered the Iraq war, the same ones mongering the war in Syria, too. So no one wants to admit that or blame him for that. So instead, they blame him for ever leaving Iraq. So then the lesson there is, and Donald Trump invoked this in his speech, is that you see what happens if you ever leave a place. It becomes a safe haven for bad guys and even as bad as ISIS itself, the Islamic State, a place, not just a terrorist group, for at least three years there. And so... The politics of that are to just stay, right? Then, then Lindsey Graham can't criticize you for every single bombing that takes place there after you withdraw. Instead, I mean, it's not going to be Donald Trump. It would have, well, I don't know what's going to happen. But in my mind's eye, it seems like it would have to be someone like Ron Paul who would be willing to say, oh, yeah, no, I expect it's going to be bad. And I'm really sorry about that. But that's everybody else's fault before me, not mine. And we're going to stop doing the wrong thing now and 
for a decent, peaceful situation to shake itself out may take I don't know how long. It may involve intervention by the Chinese and the Iranians and God knows who, but it ain't going to be us. Not anymore. And that's the kind of stand someone would have to take. Obama certainly didn't have the spine to talk like that. And Donald Trump apparently does not either. Ron Paul, of course, I think absolutely meant it when the Washington Post asked him, what would you do on your first day in office? He said, I would call all the admirals and tell them to sail home, especially from Iran immediately. Just back off Iran. And for that matter, just come home from everywhere. That's it. Pack up the sailors, the Marines. That's it. Well, with any luck, maybe in a few years, we'll have a, another Ron Paul-esque politician who's actually um, in a prominent position saying these things, although I, I'm not really holding out hope. Or, hey, maybe Ron Paul himself will, will run again. Who knows? It is kind of poetic and beautiful, though, isn't it, that the American people had their chance twice. Yeah, Full-fledged. Absolutely. It was there. The option was there. There's no doubt about it. No doubt about it. And Scott, I know you will continue to be out there regardless of what the politicians do, uh, continuing to talk your anti-war talk and address these issues. Uh, so I do want to encourage you. Maybe you can just give everybody just the, the roundup again uh, that I kind of touched on at the beginning of the show there of all the places they can find you, uh, whether it's on the radio or your book or your writings. Uh, of course, the Libertarian Institute as well. Feel free to give them the whole roundup. Yeah, it's good to be quite a list. Uh, foolserrand.us is the site for the book. And if you go there, you can read all the great blurbs that I got from Ron Paul and Daniel Ellsberg and Patrick Coburn and them. And there's a click through link there. It's on amazon.com fool's errand time to end the war in Afghanistan fool's for that. And then my show is at scotthorton.org and at libertarianinstitute.org slash scotthorton show. And I'm the managing director there at the Institute and I admit the site has taken a little bit of a short, you know, a short shrift backseat while I've been getting this book out. But we've got a brand new web guy to help out. So the, the website's going to be getting better and better there all the time at libertarianinstitute.org. And then I'm constantly on Twitter like it's a chip in my head at, uh, at Scott Wharton Show. All right, Scott. Well, it's always a pleasure talking to you. And I know you're going to stick around with me for a bit here to take a few questions from our, our great paid supporters in the Lions of Liberty Pride. So uh, well, I'll talk to you again in a minute. But uh, the rest of you can hopefully find the rest of your great work. So to keep up the great work and we'll talk soon. Thank you. All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the always insightful, always knowledgeable Scott Horton. And as longtime listeners of this program know, I was greatly affected by the events of 9-11. I was 21 years old at the time, still in college, and uh, the event really had a lot of impact on me. It really shook me awake, so to speak, and got me looking into politics, especially global politics, a lot further and in many ways pushed me down the path that would eventually lead me into the ideas of liberty. I actually talked about that in a little more detail on a recent episode of a podcast called The System is down. That show is hosted by Dan Smotz, who's a Lions of Liberty Pride member, longtime fan of the show, the guy that designed all of our t-shirts, which you can find, of course, over at lionsofliberty.store. Uh, be sure to go check out The System is Down, and I will link to that episode. It's actually a two-parter, the second part of which drops today. I will link to both of those over in today's show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 312. And because Dan Smotz is a member of the Lions of Liberty Pride, he is chipping in to help cover our costs here and help us grow this program. He is going to get to hear the bonus segment with Scott Horton, where we get into a lot of different topics, taking questions from Lions of Liberty Pride members. We get into uh, more about what's going on with the situation and motivations for the war in Afghanistan. We also get into other topics like the U.S.'s relationship with 
Saudi Arabia, the threat of North Korea, and more. So we really had a lot of great questions from Pride members. And as you guys know, Scott is extremely knowledgeable on a plethora of subjects related to foreign policy. So we really got some great info there. Again, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash support to join the Lions of Liberty Pride. For as little as five bucks a month, you can get access to all the exclusive audio that we've done over the the course of this last year. About 40 or so extra podcasts you're going to get by the time this is released. We also have our Conspiracy Corner roundtables, which have been very popular. We have bonus rants, uh, extra Is This a Crime roundtables, all sorts of extra content uh, that we give back to people as a thank you for helping us support the show. We really put a lot of effort into making sure that people that do chip in to help the show grow get a lot of extra content uh, in return for their dollars. Uh, Also, you can join at some higher levels at the $10 level and the $25 level. You can get free t-shirts, some discounts at the store, discounts that are not available to anybody else. At the $25 level, we basically give you our merchandise at cost. We don't really make anything with the the huge 30% discount we offer for those people. And if you're one of our Lions Guard members, if you're one of those guys like my man Daniel Lee, who I'm going to tell you more about in a second, who chip in at the $25 level, you get to be a real part of the show. You hop on a monthly conference call with us and really get to give more input. And we basically have a an unaired episode of Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor once a month with that crew. We really have, have a good time. So, so many ways you can support us. Again, lionsofliberty.com slash support. But uh, I don't want you supporting us unless you've already given money to help people through donor C to help Hurricane Harvey victims. All right, we're going to get by. We're going to be okay. But there are other people out there who are in a much worse condition. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, we are helping the Cajun Navy, this group of volunteers who are still out there in Houston, helping to rescue people from their homes. We have been funding their gas. We funded several rounds of uh, funding their gas. So we have bought, uh, I believe, over 100 at least gallons of gas for these people. And that number just keeps climbing as people chip in, uh, as well as we are supporting a project through Donorcy to help Daniel Lee, a guy I mentioned a minute ago. He was our very first member who joined up at the $25 level a month uh, way back in February. So he has really been chipping in, I think, technically probably more money than anybody else has has contributed to this program. So we'd like to give back to Daniel and help him get through uh, the tragedies that be- had befallen himself as well as members of his family. Not only are they trying to deal with hurricane damage and all their prepares and the money that, that goes into that, but they are also having to deal with lost wages and having not been able to work during the course of the storm. So to find out about all of these projects I want you to go over to lionsofliberty.com slash Harvey or just download that Donor C app. Hopefully you have by now. Open that thing up. Look at my profile, Mark Claire. You can go over to my my pal Clint Rankin's profile. He is the guy who's been corralling all sorts of libertarians with his group Walk the Walk to donate to various projects every month. So be sure to check him out and check out the group Walk the Walk on Facebook or walkthewalktofreedom.com. We really are making a difference of all the things that we've done through this podcast, all of the amazing guests I've had the chance to interview, guys like Ron Paul, Tom Woods, Julie Borowski, Jesse the Body Ventura, doing all that was pretty cool, of course, but nothing has really moved me like seeing the fact that we're able to actually change lives through the C app directly. We've seen the direct results of the work we've been doing, and now we can see how it's helping people here at home. Gret's been posting a bunch of updates on the page for the Cajun Navy Project. 
project. Daniel has been posting some updates of the, some of the initial repairs he's been able to do thanks to the money you guys have chipped in. So you really are making a difference in other people's lives. We are doing more than just talking about how libertarians could voluntarily help people in this theoretical society. We are showing people how we can help people voluntarily. And uh, the people at Donors Day have been a huge part of that. So please, I encourage you to go ahead and check that out and chip in whatever you can. That's it for me, folks. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss all the other great shows here on the Lions of Liberty podcast feed. Like I mentioned, Brian McWilliams coming at you this Wednesday with your weekly dose of comedy, culture, and liberty with Electric Liberty Land. And Friday, we'll see John Odermatt tackling that broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. Until then, folks, live long and live free.